Brexit means Brexit. An exit from Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is the great idea. Hello and welcome to Debated Podcast. This is the second episode with me, Conrad, with Will, my co-host, and Hello. and this this week we are joined by Alka Siegel Cuthbert, who is a Brexit Party candidate for London for the MEP elections, and is also an educational researcher. So, um, before we get started, um, would you like to sort of say a bit more about what drove you to um, support Brexit in the first place, Alka? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, well, uh, for for me, it was um, it was two two things really, two related things. The most important was I really felt there was a, a really um, democratic quite a problem with democratic accountability in a political life and and public life. Um, I felt the established parties were really failing to. Um, have any kind of connection they're more and more insulated and isolated from uh, the public that they they really are meant to serve you know it's it's our through our consent that they rule so I was very very concerned about that um, and then I suppose um, a related a related issue uh, is one of a kind of increasing technocratic approach in public and institutional life more widely uh, which I'm you know, people have said, well, how is that related to the European Union? Um, what's the connection? Um, I don't think necessarily there's a direct connection, but I do think, you know, if politics is done in a certain way, it does kind of roll out downwards and across horizontally throughout society and sort of measures of accountability, target setting, um, outcome. I work in education, so sort of outcome outcome-led strategies that have quite a negative effect on the intellectual content of what's going on in education seemed really problematic to me as well. Yeah, I, I resonate a lot with what you just said, because I, yeah, I, I voted a lot for Brexit based a lot on democratic principles and, and sort of the distantness of the EU. I mean, my, my, for my sort of philosophy is that power should be as close to the people as possible. Yeah. And... Um, the fact is, like the like the EU ha- is just so distant, so so many layers of bureaucracy and stuff that it's that it, people don't feel like they have control, and that that was my simple reason. And um, we've got yep. Will Will who voted Remain. <laughs> I don't know if he's got anything <laughs> to say about that. <laughs> uh, well, no, I think I think it's a an interesting point of view and one that I think by any party that supported Remain or still supports Remain has to address because i think that it's understandable that people feel that there isn't the same democratic um accountability to the people of the united kingdom from the eu that they might have say from a local councillor or from their mp i just wondered um what what sort of arguments do you think you would make when out canvassing to someone who had voted for remain to convince them in these elections to vote for the Brexit party. Yeah, no, um, well, I think the the main thing, which is is the most important thing, it, it's um, it's the one Conrad mentioned, which is the the democratic deficit. Um, and it's not just um, that the EU is distant, like physically. It's um, understanding 
that institutionally it's so bound up that our that you know our ruling the people that rule us would rather seek their legitimacy and look for consent not to not to their own populations but to their pals you know in in in, in other nations and and the group that it is it isn't like this it depends who I'm talking to quite a few younger people see the EU as a kind of wonderful international cultural club but it isn't really it's a club of it's a club of business people with a very restricted idea of what business is which is mainly sort of trading and big banks um which has done a lot of harm to the economic basis of of nations and it's really as as well as the kind of more ideological and political problems so in terms of talking to people on the street i mean it's very simple it's just say do you do you think your vote counts if you think it 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 doesn't count but you think it should count and if you think our government should be responsible to us rather than to their pals in europe then then the brexit party is the only party to vote for on thursday do you think the fact that um you haven't had a manifesto going to these into these elections mm-hmm. do you think that it's helped you or hindered you somewhat campaigning um well uh probably a bit of both although i think generally the people that really stick 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 to that you know are really wedded to that as an objection are, are probably people who are very very staunch um remainers um because i think it's quite well firstly i think well the parties that have had manifestos haven't done a great job so i can't see how a manifesto alone um is is like a talisman for great politics um the second thing is we we don't have a manifesto as such because we it we're as yet not a proper party it's a supporters party and <clears throat> we're united um on that principle of democracy and overall i think that has helped because people can see how important it is when you can have a living embodiment of bankers nurses civil servants teachers a whole range of people standing just like you have in real life um who can get together and commit themselves to something that's bigger than each individual yeah that was one thing that was quite noticeable when the brexit was releasing a list of candidates that they were such like a diverse range, almost without like quotas or anything. But they they were from not even just in like the skin deep level, but also in terms of their backgrounds, their life experiences, which um, which I which I think was a big contrast when when Change UK released their list, and it was just all these um, <laughs> failed old politicians and and journalists what? from you know, and there there wasn't that range. Um, but um, so you've obviously come from the ac- the educational academic side of things. Um, is it difficult being a Brexit supporter in that kind of environment? <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> um, yes, I, 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 I can't tell you the. Um, uh, it's not like I've had um, a pile of abuse or anything like that. But it is very. It's very. You know, immediately after the referendum. Everywhere I, uh, I think I was still, I was still just in the last year of my PhD at, at Cambridge, and all the all the meetings, academic meetings I went to, everybody assumed that I was Remain, um, and as and I, I was just very open and upfront and said, well, actually I voted Leave, and literally I had people kind of look at one person actually said to me, oh gosh, I've I've, I've never I've never met anyone who 
who voted who voted to leave, as if I was a sort of um, species of some strange creature. <laughs> and he sort of turned away and went off to find somebody else to chat with, which, which was fine with, by me. But um, and and you know, and then you know, in a crowded hall at the LSE where there's um, Amartya Sen talking, and uh, it, was, it was brilliant, really good speech. But then just at the end, he does that thing which a lot of academics do, which is slip in a political point. And it was about Brexit. And again, it was about um, assuming that everybody that voted leave was was unintelligent. And I had to raise an objection from the audience. And I, I, I don't know if you know the main theatre at the LSE. It's a pretty big um, auditorium. Everybody was just like hissing and rolling their <laughs> eyes at me. So it's not been comfortable. It's not been comfortable. But I, I hope the few academics that, that know me and know my work can kind of, can kind of get, get beyond that. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, I'm I'm a, a student who um, who does a course that's biochemistry, so it's not. You wouldn't think that Brexit would ever even come up in lectures, but you do occasionally get the the, the snide comments, you know, like they'll they'll make a little joke, which obviously, you know, it's fair, they're fair play to them; they've allowed their views, but yeah. I, it is it sort of hints at sort of a culture that you know. And I've got friends who do things like history and politics, where like <laughs> the bias is quite clear and quite prominent in the actual teaching i mean you you do history will i mean what have you found it to be like um well i i found it interesting uh that in terms of looking at periods like the uh, the 1970s and the 80s how much there's been an influence from a writers from a particularly uh, marxist perspective but that hasn't been reflected in a, a similar sort of balance with um perhaps more uh, right-wing thinkers of the time. I, I, I think it's interesting how that can sometimes warp a, p- a particular perspective of history in a particular era. Because if you're reading an account of something written by someone with a particularly overt political opinion, whether that be left or right, and you just believe it as gospel, that can then uh, overly influence how you respond to question, so I, I think it's interesting that, as you said, uh, Conrad, that there are such biases that sometimes creep in, regardless of subject. Can I can I step in here? Oh, yeah, yeah sure. no, of course, you can. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that's that that is really true, and it's very. I think the social sciences and the the art, humanities and arts are particularly prone prone to it because. Um, it's those subjects that the question of interpretation has a much bigger role. You know, the, the methods of of working in those disciplines are, are quite different to those of the natural sciences or or of mathematics. Um, and what's been really worrying for me, my my area is English, is is the kind of what what you were alluding to, um, uh, uh, Conrad. I think when you were saying that. There's sort of one kind of Marxist or deconstructive or post-structuralist, whatever you want to call it, approach um, that dominates. Um, and and it, it's really, really worrying because it's not just um, that doesn't just I mean, the political bias is usually quite clear to see, but it actually, you know, it hampers the, the progress of the discipline itself. It kind of really distorts the truth value and the truth content of of knowledge within that discipline, um, and I think that 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 for me is 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 a deeply deeply worrying thing because if you're not going to have um, academics committed to pursuing 
you know, truthful knowledge within academia, then then, then that's a really big problem. <laughs> I wondered, um, you were talking about uh, abuse. Uh, I wondered whether, because uh, as we've seen in the news today, Nigel Farage's um, the milkshake was thrown over him. I wondered whether you had faced any such sort of similar abuse when out campaigning. And <laughs> if, if, if you had, whether you ever felt threatened or did it antagonize you in any way or what how, how did you feel about it okay well it's funny you should ask that because i was i was out canvassing um yesterday in in, in romford and i i had just had a brilliant range of responses um uh you know from somebody well, from somebody saying uh um you're a disgusting racist to, to me, right in my face, which was a, a little odd um, because I'm actually um, my origins, ethnic origin is Indian. Um, and uh, then I had to, you know somebody else could sort of go by and say, uh, "No way, I'm not voting for you. I want all immigrants to to to, to be chucked out." So it's sort of two very extreme responses. Um, I didn't feel threatened by either of them. Um, I just, uh, but I didn't particularly, I thought, okay, but those, that's what you think. Neither of them were, were like threatening to me. They just wanted to say their piece and, and walk off. But in between, I just had talk, spoke to so many people of such a range of, of nuanced opinions that it was really, really refreshing. So occasionally you get, um, I, I feel more at threat, if you like, in a, in a weird way, not physically, but I feel more nervous um, not on the streets talking to ordinary people, but much more in, in, in academic situations because you know the kind of um, kind of quiet, passive, aggressive hostility that, that uh, arises in those things. There's a very, um, an element of, uh, you know, sort of, I think, uh, assumed superiority that isn't always warranted that can be have quite a chilling and unnerving effect. For me, that's worse than the blatant, you know, insults. Yeah, I mean, I, like I've I've done plenty of campaigning in the past as a Conservative Party member, and you do get obviously some, you know, abuse. You know, you can call it that. You know, from on the doorstep, that's just. Yeah. But I think that 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 is something that's going to happen no matter what party you do it for. And, mm. But I feel as like people can have a bit of a shout and have their say or whatever. When it when it comes to things being thrown and that stepping into a. A, a level that we shouldn't really be crossing in like a democratic society there's um a lot of um people have wondered how sort of how the brexit party is going to continue after these elections because obviously these elections you've got the the thing of democracy holding everyone together but you've yeah. got the broad range of candidates which is great for these elections but you know how can someone like claire fox and Anne Widdicombe continue <laughs> in the same party afterwards what would you say would be the kind of policies that could sort of bring them together well um i think i think what we talk uh, i mean you're quite right that 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 may well be uh that's i think we all recognize that the really difficult hard work is going to come after the after the 23rd um i think all i can say is that i as well it remains to be seen exactly how the party will work internally but there's certainly so far the kinds of um, policies around, um, uh, well, I mean, to do with the economy or fisheries or immigration. Those are the kind of key education, of course. I would, I, 
what what I, what I am going to be arguing for is that we need to have the wide fullest discussion uh, within within the party um, and within this broader broader range of supporters as possible. Um, and then how there will be obviously there will have to be sort of groups set up advisors because obviously we don't all know everything about everything. I'm working alongside people who who would be really good on economic policy, for example, but who don't know anything about education. I know nothing about fracking, so when it comes to the environment, I would want, you know, want to be um, having conversations with people who knew, who had more expert knowledge in that. So I, I can't say as yet. It has to be worked out, to be honest. It has to be worked out. But what I can say is that um, there's an openness to trying things out, to trying to. There's a real commitment to trying to do politics, to do a different politics, achieve a different politics. And that's going to mean having a wider range of conversations, non-technocratic conversations as well, not just sort of quite passive ones, you know. So they may well be falling out, you know, who knows? We'll, I think we'll have to have to wait and see. Sorry if that sounds like I'm sitting on the fence, but that really is all, all I, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it is kind of understandable at this stage because it is, I mean, how, how well, been going the race wise hasn't been going that long, has it? No, four So weeks. it's in that way it's sort of incredible how... Um, how it sort of it's increased in the polls by so much. Um, what would you dare to make predictions in 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 how well you think you can like the party will do during the European elections, or will you just wait for the polls? Well, we'll, to we'll wait close? and see. I mean, obviously, you know, we're hopeful. Um, there are lots of good signs. Uh, I've certainly just. Um, I don't just go by polls. I think lots of people have been caught caught on that one before um but uh but but i go more on you know the actual membership and the as you as you pointed out the kind of speed with which people have been signing up uh, and also the way people have been just speaking to me like i was in a in a, li- a library and the librarian kind of quietly said to me have i seen you on youtube and she was referring to my my launch speech and she was just, you know, sort of back thanking me for, for for standing. And it really kind of took me aback and made me feel quite sort of humble and aware, really super aware of the responsibility of, of doing something like this. Um, and I just, I think it's, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But it clearly has tapped into and allowed the voice um, people who have been silent and felt they've had to remain silent for such a long time. To come out and make this a, make themselves heard in the public arena, which which can only be a good thing. Um, I'd just uh, quickly like to look at um, some of the things that you've written because you've uh, written quite a lot for uh, a variety of different websites, uh, whether yeah. that be uh, spiked or uh, education-based websites. Yeah. I, w- I was just um, wondering. You wrote an article recently. Uh, regarding the No Outsiders programme in oh, yes, Parkfield. Yes. Yeah. And I just wondered whether you could clarify something <clears throat> for me. Because mm-hmm. in, in in the piece you um, argue that it's not a bad thing that the parents should feel that uh, they can take their children out of the school because it um, teaches something that they disagree with. But you also wrote an article back in 2018 arguing that the banning of the hijab was a liberal act. I was wondering, could you explain how it's liberal to perhaps enforce one thing, such as the uh, banning of the hijab, 
but yeah. it was all right for parents to take their children out of schools like Parkfield. I wondered if you could just elaborate on that a bit. Sure, sure. I, I'll do my best. Um, okay, so it, it comes, I mean, first of all, I, I didn't think it was particularly a good thing for parents to take their kids out. I think it's quite sad if it gets to that state where parents feel they have to, because it obviously it shows that there's been a sort of breakdown of trust between parents mm. and, and schools. Um, the key thing for me is that I, I sort of, I'm thinking uh, that with, liberal, with liberal cultural values, I don't think you can kind of have like a template or, um, you know, sort of set of things that you apply kind of in a, quite an automatic way you ha- to all situations. So with the hijab, um, and I, sorry, I'll just rewind. The other really important thing is, is what schools can and can't teach. Mm. And the different kinds of um, the different things schools have to deal with in in a pluralistic democratic society. So, on the hijabs, I thought I agree. Schools have the right to set their own uniform code, um, and if they decide that they want to uh, not have the hijab for their own for their own reasons, the school at that time in uh, that particular school was was mm. concerned to um, you know. Uh, inculcate a feeling of inclusiveness amongst all their pupils um, then I felt the schools have every right to do that um, so that was why I uh, stood up for the schools right there because that they are you know that 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 I think is with legitimately within a school's remit on the much more difficult tricky thing of uh, um, teaching sex and relationships education um, there are two main points I'd make about that I mean I I fought against Clause 28 way back when because I didn't think the, I I thought teachers needed to have the autonomy and freedom to be able to talk to children about these things and you know deal with any concerns or anxieties. Mm. My my worry and and I and it's actually for the same reason that I, partly for the same reason that I was I was very I think the um, imposition of SRE. Is problematic because in a way it's sort of making teachers feel that they have to talk about these these things and talk about them in a certain way and it can create it can create actually sort of be very counterproductive you know mm. because I think teachers need to be able to feel confident to deal with individual situations and I think both clause 28 and the imposition of you know an official from high um, code of how to deal with with very personal private matters that, that you know, actually traditionally, and I think, you know, um, quite rightly, has been left to the remit of parents, you know, how you, you know, personal morality and how you conduct relationships. It's not, it's not formal teaching. It's not formal knowledge. You can't kind of get a list of rules, uh, generalizable rules. It's much more, um, you know, if you like, phrenesis or practical wisdom that, that is much wider than just school or teachers alone. Does uh, that clear it a bit? Or? Oh, yeah, no, that, that clears it a bit. I was, I was just wondering, do you not um, worry, though, that in particular households where mm. there may be parents who don't feel comfortable right. talking about these issues, that mm. if there isn't a framework in schools to discuss them, a sort of yeah. like a, a compulsory framework, that these kids then... <laughs> might not learn about something that you know 
might be okay. part of their sexuality going forward or might not, but they might have uh, perhaps not a, a full understanding of it. Does, does that not worry you at all? No, 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 it doesn't, not really, because um, because I think um, it's true, not all parents are the same, some parents will have different views, and, you know, in, in the particular Parkfield case, uh, I wouldn't, I don't agree with the parents' views, uh, you know, they were at the, the original case, I don't know who got involved later, various groups and things might have got um, been brought into the fray, but the original parents were not homophobic, or else they would have taken their children out of that school or you know protested earlier it was um you know the head was well known to a well-known gay gay deputy head rather sorry he's not the head so i don't think it was that it was their religious beliefs which as it happens i disagree with but you know again it goes we live in a pluralistic society so schools have to tread teachers have to tread that line between um public knowledge that is accepted as public knowledge and then sort of exemplifying through their relationships and ethos all kinds of other if you like non-stipulable values of how you treat treat people how you conduct kinds of conversations and relationships um and then they also have to recognize that um you know in that pluralistic society there has to be there has to be a kind of um you're dealing with with parents and families who will have very different ideas to yourself about sexuality and family life um and as long as as long as no one's you know sort of um uh, acting in a prejudiced or violent way i don't think I, you know with, within this within the school itself all kind of acts of um you know the way children act that might harm each other i think could come under bullying i don't see why you have to separate out categories of, of types of offense and harm because I think, if anything, that kind of that works against creating the kind of solidarity that that kids kids kind of build up themselves if you let them do it mm. spontaneously and with a bit of guidance from teachers as they they act as professional individuals. I think. Mm. Uh, I, in other words, what I'm saying is, I think the codification of it, like saying, and it was, you know, it is quite, you know, you you, you know, it, it is quite you ha- you teach. I'm all for teaching sex um, in terms of knowledge, as mm. perhaps within biology, yeah. the different kinds of sex, and you can expand that if you want to. But the actual relations—I mean, I don't—you know—how can you teach how to how to have a relationship with somebody? I, I just—I um, think what what happens is you end up um, you end up kind of imposing that, that that there's a correct way of doing things that can increase. The anxiety of people who are already quite, you know, at an anxious age anyway, mm. teenagers. So, um, moving on to something in higher education that you've spoken on in the past, um, and that is becoming more and more of a sort of uh, hot topic. Um, mm. I, I sit on the um, education exec of the Students' Union at my university. And um, one topic that we've discussed quite a bit is um, decolonising the curriculum. Right. Um, I was wondering, mm-hmm. you, this is something you've discussed before, but um, what what are your views on this and, and the step towards mm-hmm. that? Okay, well, it's something I, I've, I've written about and I'm continually thinking about, actually. Um, okay, so I think... Um, 
there's two there's there's two things there's an epistemological knowledge part to it and then there's the wider political part to it to decolonizing i think in as far as in as far as the calls to decolonize the curriculum are limited to and restrained to um, expanding the canon and looking for a broader range of texts and revising criteria but revising criteria on you know grounds that make sense within the discipline then that's fine you know I, I'd certainly be all for that I you know in literature I think it would be really very productive to have a look at a, a range of books from um, you know much internationally African literature Indian literature for sure but that's not really what de- that 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 um, that isn't really what decolonizing demands are about. Really, they're much more um, a much kind of broader remit of trying to really do politics through the curriculum. And in a way, it's a very and I think it is actually a very elitist project because, well, if you're talking about doing politics through education anyway, education doesn't. You know, you're talking about adults and children or adults and young people. It's not adult, equal adults as citizens in the wider political sphere. It's already a kind of selected audience and sphere you're talking about. Um, and you don't, you know, it's, 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 a way of, it's a way of co-opting what was a progressive politics decades ago of um, upholding minority rights in order to help in help people who face discrimination enter majority society on an equal footing but i think that's long since gone what's happening today and i think decolonizing is part of this is a push by the new elites to use minority um, arguments against majority against the majority so you know you know in, in cambridge when i hear um you know um certain academics i, I won't say their names but you know they're um, very much attached to decol calls to decolonize a curriculum, and they're complaining about you know I look they say things like well you look around and you just see all white faces all the professors are white, and they automatically assume that that's because of discrimination, but you know you just think well yeah well if you're on those grounds you know if you went to Delhi University you'd see most of the professors' faces were brown you know it just seems like a ludicrous thing to say, and then there's a question of well. Um, you know, it takes a long time to become a professor unless you th- want to make professorship just, you know, really kind of devalue what it what it means and and um, the kind of work time and effort it takes to, to achieve that that status. Then it takes time. So, you know, you've got new 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 cohorts of academics entering academia and they'll have to work their way up to become professors. I don't think you can shortcut that really without 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 um, totally de- saying that education is nothing and politics is politicizing it for um for, your, for a minority interest which i think is really undemocratic no i think yeah i think i agree with you a lot on what you said there and um i feel like it's, it, i mean especially i agree that the in terms of broadening and getting more different things involved that's not a bad thing but when it's when it's at the expense of of what's already being taught i think it's um it's a, it's a bit worrying and especially um when they try and because i mean i i was i ran for education officer in my students union wasn't successful but one of the um questions that i was asked was asked about that and i mm. um i mentioned that i do biochemistry so i as a science student i don't know as much about 
decolonizing as 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 you know someone because it's not it doesn't seem as relevant to my subject yeah and, oh, I bet uh, that went down well <laughs> yeah exactly that's the thing it, it, it didn't go down well but that's the that's I, I, I just don't understand where, where you can come from in that sense because you know when i'm stuck when i'm doing my project on genome sizes what you mm. know what doesn't really i'm not looking really looking at what the name of the professor is i'm just looking <laughs> at what what the science is but um anyway so um you'll be surprised i was at a conference where the paper was being given on decolonizing the himalayan rivers which um well i t- talked to people in india about that they were just fell about laughing they couldn't understand what what on earth was going on but on a more serious note, it's, it's it's really worrying because you can see that institute organisations like the student unions, in line with things like the Equality um, Challenge Unit, which are, are new bodies, um, they're they're really it is like you know they're narrowing their kind of cultural gatekeepers, and it's really a kind of form of um, what do you call it turf you know stomping out your turf of, of trying to. Of trying to claim claim authority, but the authority isn't based on any creating any better knowledge. It's just create created on moralising and kind of quite quite um you know co- co- imposing a conformity, a moralistic conformity, which is totally antithetical to any intellectual inquiry. Really, deeply mm. worrying. So um, it's been great having you on in this episode. It's been really interesting discussion. Um, so, bef- bef- but before we go. Um, there's um there's been another un, un, undemocratic bureaucratic EU institution <laughs> in the news recently and that is the Eurovision Song Contest which which happened <laughs> at the weekend. So do you think that we should be leaving that as well as the EU? <laughs> oh, well I missed it this year. I'm afraid I'm going to have to say I really don't I haven't got much of an opinion on the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> no. I think I gave up watching it when um what's his name won it. I've forgotten his name now. A couple of years ago, he's he's always on, um, you know, celebrity me telly and that now. But uh, no, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to have to just say I don't know on that one. But um, thank you very much for for uh, inviting me. <laughs> <laughs>